So hello everyone and thank you so much for joining us this evening for tonight's um, Arcola conversation. Um, my name's Alex and I'm the communications manager at Arcola. Um, for those of you who are new to this series, um, it's an online um, series of events which was created earlier this year to provide a kind of opportunity for our audiences at Arcola to reconnect with each other and to discuss some of the kind of seismic issues that face our communities today. Um, it's really wonderful to have so many of you here. Um, so thank you all so much for giving up this hour of your time to be here with us. We really, really um, appreciate it. Um, so before I just introduce our fantastic chair and panel of speakers for this evening, I'd just like to go through a few kind of housekeeping things. Um, so firstly, we just want to make sure these spaces are places of open discussion and reflection. So you're very welcome to use the chat function throughout the panel discussion to share any thoughts and ideas that might come to you. Um, with that in mind, we do, um, of course, ask that all comments are respectful and kind of maintain the safety and well-being of everyone in the audience and on the panel as well. Um, in terms of our schedule this evening, we're gonna have about 45 minutes of chair discussion before opening up some questions towards the end. Um, it would be really helpful if everyone could just keep your microphones on mute um, throughout the kind of first 45 minutes, just so that we don't disrupt the flow. Um, but then when we invite people to ask questions, you're very welcome to unmute yourself and direct any questions to the panel. Um, forgive us if we can't get through all of the questions that you have, um, but we'll do our very best to take as many as, you, as we can. And those um, submitted in advance, we'll try to kind of build those into the, the main thrust of the discussion. Um, so this evening, we are here to mark the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, uh, which fueled global movements to fight systemic racism in our societies and our personal and political lives as well. One year after voices across the globe stood in solidarity against state violence, um, tonight we want to just explore how much progress has really been made and what actions must now be taken to oppose racism and white supremacy in our communities, society and around the world. So before I um, introduce our wonderful panel, it just feels important to take a moment of silence um, to honour George's memory and the hundreds of others who have been murdered by the police since his death last year. So if it's okay with everyone, we'll just take a moment to just pause and reflect. Feel free to turn your cameras off if you wish to, but yeah, we'll just take a moment. Thank you, everyone. Um, so yeah, without further ado, um, I'm so thrilled to introduce our panel for this evening. 
Um, so chairing our discussion this evening, we have um, B Uday. B has worked in the arts and cultural sector for 20 years. Um, her areas of expertise include audience development, uh, cultural strategy, and small business entrepreneurship. Um, through Bebop Productions, um, B's portfolio includes independent arts consultant, producer, and writer who's commissioned work covering poetry, creative, and critical genres. B uses her skills of working in the aero engine, media, education, and arts sectors to challenge systemic practices that marginalize voices by raising awareness of infrastructural discrimination and anti-blackness. A very warm welcome to you, B. We're really, really grateful for your time this evening. And on our panel this evening, we have George Shire. Uh, George is a retired academic cultural theorist, historian of ideas, DJ and jazz saxophonist, who's been engaged with questions of knowledge and power from the global South. So we are really thrilled to have you with us, George. Thank you for giving up your time this evening. Thank you. And finally, on our panel, we've got Diane Abbott, um, MP. In 1987, Diane made history by becoming the first black woman ever elected to British Parliament. She has since built a distinguished career as a parliamentarian, broadcaster and commentator. From the outset of her career, Diane has championed global justice, human rights, peace and security issues at home and abroad. From 2015 to 2019, Diane was a prominent member of Labour's front bench, shadow front bench, serving as the shadow international development secretary, the shadow secretary for state, Health and finally Shadow Home Secretary from 2016. In the last general election, Diane was re-elected as a Member of Parliament for Hackney North and Stoke Newington with a landslide majority and is also Arcola's own local MP. So welcome Diane, we are very very pleased to have you here this evening. Um, great, I will stop talking now and hand over to B um, and just yet yeah, we'll get straight into this. So yeah, thank you everyone for being here this evening and I'll hand over to you B. Thank you. Thank you very much. The first thing I wanted to do was just to centre us in this conversation. And today, I invite you to acknowledge the UK as a colonial power, including the Commonwealth. And so, I can't breathe. A statement that we've heard for years and years and years, uttered by many people from the global majority and with underlying conditions that have taken on many nuances, especially when we talk about the global majority in the UK, how are you? That's what I'm putting to the panel. How are you and how would you rate the temperature of your mental and emotional health of the diaspora in the UK right now? I'll ask Diane first of all. Well, I think in some ways, if you're part of the black diaspora in the UK, you can be quite vulnerable. Because on the one hand, you have outright acts of violence, the way it happened to George Floyd, but also, I mean, here in Stoke Newington, over 30 years I've been a member of Parliament, we had a series of deaths in custody. And at least in George Floyd's case, the policeman stood trial and was sentenced. Of all of the deaths in custody that we've had in Stoke Newington and other London police stations, I don't think a policeman's ever been so much as disciplined. But it's not just those things, it's all the kind of microaggressions that can make you weary. And people don't, uh, they don't even know sometimes what they're doing, but the microaggressions of living in a, a white majority society can make you weary. Thank you. 
Thank you, Diane. George? Well, I was, I was, let me come to you in a slightly different way. I was just thinking that um, it's literally 40 years now, 40 years to date, since the uh, largely black youth um, uh, speared and civil disorders that marked, um, uh, that, uh, that generated this coming inquiry, mm? at which we began to talk about the notion of is the, the, the language of institutional, institutional racism became the lexicon official discourse in this country. Exactly 40 years on, we have a government that is literally, through the recent report, want to erase that conversation and erase that, that, that lexicon of institutional racism. <clears throat> I want to pay tribute to the youth, the young people who, who, who speared that, the, those civil disorders. Without them, I would not have been, I would not have become, or the space in which I became an academic would not have occurred. I'm referencing it that way, because in looking back, the macroaggressions that Diana so eloquently just, put, just suggested, for me, have not ceased. They simply have moved into something much larger, if not terrifying. The second thing is to remember that, to remember Colin Roach, who died, who was shot in a police station, but the official language is that he killed himself by a gun in a police station. Nobody knows where the gun came from. We still to date don't know who killed Colin Roach. And he is not alone in that image. It references the numbers of people who died at the hands of police station, at, at police. It's not just confined to the police, it's in our hospitals, it's in our number of other, would you say, public institutions that interact with black folk in which black lives do not matter. The third thing I would say is Black Lives Matter for me is the, if you like, the rebirth of the black power, okay, of a new generation that I've seen growing up over the last, and I'm empowered by them, but this time it's black and white youth literally not taking back the sort of uh, everyday racism my generation went to. So in one respect, the language has changed, but I say I'm terrified, if you like, as it is unleashing in a different form, encompassing those of us whose connection the encompass what used to be the empire. Now, if you think about it in relation to that, think about what's going on immigration. Think about what's going on at Yahoo prison. Think about the deaths of the people that are, you know, we talk about, the people who die are trying to get into this country. You know, they didn't choose to come, they're dying to get into trouble. Think about those kinds of questions in that context. We are now in a situation that some people can decide who lives and who dies. In that context, it's black lives that are considered not worth living. And definitely it is about language and language, and I think as well, leadership. And when we look at leadership being visible, it's about being able to, you know, include as a matter of course, rather than be included, rather than being um, ignored. And I think when we saw the video of the video of knee on neck, we were very visible at that moment in time when we look at the global majority and considered um, of value during that event. What kind of leadership is needed now as we navigate coming outside and breathing into in the new normal 
what kind of leadership do we, do we need to see from our own community and from others who placed um, black squares who are, who are of the global minority here in the UK? Well, 40 years ago, we, we, in a way, we, didn't, we, we had to produce the leadership for that moment. Of course, with our own, what I would call our intellectual ancestors, those who, who gave us inspiration. My argument with this generation is that you have to produce your own leadership. That, that, is, that takes note of the histories that has produced your past to come into the present. Okay, so turn it on its head. Ten, ten on its head, partly because you want to get away from the civilizing idea that there's somebody who's going to come to the rescue. You have to take it on yourselves. But I do caution that you must, at the very least, take account of the histories that have produced your present. And that can only be done by taking note of who your intellectual ancestors are. And I'm going to give you a lot, but you have to do that. You have to do the work that allows you to make sense of what's going on. That's the first part. Without that, we continue to think a savior is going to run around the corner. I have to disappoint you and say that's not going to happen. And Diane, in terms of leadership, you have led on many different fronts. When you look at leadership now, today, coming out in the new normal, we're seeing a lot of young people who are stepping forth, stepping up, showing up and saying, this is what we want to see as change. What kind of attributes are, have existed in the past in the UK that we can take forward? Because we're always looking towards places like America and we'll be looking at Malcolm X and, and Angela Davis, et cetera. But we're not necessarily looking at our role models here and looking at the attributes and saying, these are the leaders that we want to be by seeing people like yourself and George who have led. Well, um, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a leader. I've done what I thought it was important to do in the times and the places where I found themselves, which is all any of us can do. I think that the leadership going forward is going to come from young people, including some of the young people that came out on the street in the Black Lives Matter um, demonstrations that we saw last year. And for them to be able to come together and, and offer leadership, first of all, they have to build on our history as people of colour. And you've spoken about some really you know, famous and important uh, black Americans but you know my family's from the Caribbean and uh, the Caribbean has a history of struggle and the Caribbean has a history of resistance and although now we're perhaps two or three generations away from that generation in the Caribbean and Africa that fought for freedom that that is part of our history and I think one of the important things about forming a leadership is that people know and understand and respect our history. And of course, um, the Tories know the importance of knowing and understanding the contribution of colonialism and people of colour to this country. That's why they're so adamant about not allowing people 
to challenge the way that the history of colonialism is canonized. That's why they got so upset about, you know, taking down statues, about taking down the statue of uh, Cecil Rhodes, about basically refusing, refusing to allow the Jeffrey Museum to take down the statue of the Jeffrey, the slaveholder, which is in the front of the Jeffrey Museum on Kingsland Road. You shouldn't dismiss history and culture because the Tories know it's extremely important and, and fight culture wars against it. So we're looking for younger generations to come forward. We're looking for an understanding of our culture and history. And we're looking for unity because one of the ways that historically the British ruling class has undermined working people, whatever their color, is to kind of divide and rule and pick people off one by one. And what we have to do is, is have a measure of unity. So we're looking at um, Black Lives Matter um, as, a, as a movement and also as a statement. And you're talking about young people who are rising up. And recently we've had some, somebody was shot from the Black Lives Matter movement. Was it Sasha Johnson? So she's recently been shot. And there is obviously, the, there is some discourse as to whether or not she um, is a gang member or whether she, or whether it was just a random shooting. So, you know, my, my question to the panel is, how do you support the, how, how can we support what is happening in the movement? Because a lot of people went out today and they started to, they, they were commemorating what's happened with George Floyd. So how can we support the movement and take the, the words, the language of Black Lives Matter to places where it does impact on social justice, where it does impact on the resources that are allocated to different areas of social justice themes? George. Every time, I mean, what's happened to Sasha is, uh, is, 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 in, is, is undescribable. And, and I can't imagine for life for me what's happening to, the, to her family, immediate, you know, if you like, her blood family, but also to us all because she's a member of our family. That's the first thing. And I think, and I think that, and, and, I want us to, and I want us to think about the way in which every time there is a black death, there is always an immediate assumption is is connected to criminality, okay? So and that switch is is not is not a conspiracy theory. It's the way in which the struggle over land use takes place. Now I can bet you my next pension salary if it was a white person, her lifestyle their lifestyle would not have been the issue. Do you know what I mean? The investigation isn't done. Nobody has completed investigation. And then people are ruling out all sorts. My question is, how do you know it wasn't on day one? Okay. Just, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, but it indicates the way in which uh, these things, and that happened to Smiley Culture as well, that he was criminalized. And in further events began to indicate something quite sinister before. That happened with Colin Roach too. You know, these ways in which the language of criminalization comes straight into play every time a black life is lost. We must not lose sight of that. That's, uh, that's part of what uh, the necrophilia, yes, necro necro necropolitical in the sense who dies, who lives. 
So we are named in that way. And as part and parcel of understanding our politics of resistance and struggle is to understand the struggle of a meaning, how we're engaged in that. So the conversation which ought to be focusing on what precisely her own political formation institution collectivities we're talking about, which is she had already been subject to death threats, ends up being a sort of side tribe, ends up being, that is a, nobody's talking about how she lived with death threats. Now, and the kind of, and this is almost the case, even with the new crossfire, the question was to the criminality and so on. This is not new to our communities. Now, I'm not saying therefore it is, there is another explanation, but I'm skeptical about the immediate blanketing the immediate description of the cause of death in that way. That is not you, right? That's the first. The second point I would like to make <clears throat> is this, the, and it is connected to what I was saying earlier, which is to do with the, with the, with the politics in the reloading the politics of black politics again, and the way in which those circumstances will produce experientially a new leadership. The issue I raise is that history, that new leadership must pay to the history that is produced present, right? Now, in other words, we should not be surprised that the language that is being used to describe what happened to Sasha already criminalizes herself. Whereas if we'd been paying attention to things that happened before, we would have a counter move. We would know better how to respond to the emerging attempt to demonize before they even know. Those are the, those are the things I, I, I just delicately want us to pay attention to so that we see where we are. And Diane, how do you respond to that? Well, I think it, it's very interesting, as George just said, um, there's been no conclusive investigation and it's interesting how much the media defaults to the idea that this one's some this is some kind of gang killing. And it is a general thing um, that it does seem sometimes that the media doesn't value, literally doesn't value black lives. So if there's some kind of catastrophe overseas and it involves black people, it doesn't necessarily get the coverage as if it's a catastrophe which involves people who, to use your phrase, are of the global minority and that the most pernicious thing about black lives not mattering is when we as black people start to believe that ourselves because right. that's a really kind of corrosive thing when we don't believe that our own lives matter yeah and that's a that's a that is a tragedy and i think part of that is around i think education and how we um how we learn and how we take that learning into into our bodies and in, not just through the curriculum but into our into our mindsets as well imagine if um teacher training colleges encouraged trainee teachers to incorporate broader examples in their lesson plans from across the diaspora and the broader commonwealth how would students in primary and secondary schools differ in this new normal diane well, I think very important for all children to really understand British history. I always say that I, you know, I was born in this country and I went to school in this country, primary school, grammar school, Cambridge University. I didn't learn anything about black history when I was at school and uni. Everything I learned about 
black history and black writers for that matter, I had to go, you didn't have the internet in those days, so I had to go to black bookshops, I had to go to meetings. I was completely self-taught. And can you imagine, you spend your whole life studying history and I learned nothing about black history. Everything I now know, I had to find out. And I think that's very unfair on children. They don't understand their history in their in its totality. And I think if all children, black and white, understood British history better, and in particular, understood the role of colonialism and post-colonialism in this country, I think they'd have a different perspective. How many children, how many British children, black or white, understand how much of the investment which helped to build up the British Industrial Revolution came from slavery and the slave trade? People don't know that. And if you try and say that, people get, you know, people get very upset. Hence all the complaints about pulling down statues of slave traders. But why would we want to memorialise slave traders? It's as if we're trying to blank out what the reality of slavery was. Slavery was extraordinary cruelty and broken bodies, and we shouldn't be memorialising it. It's almost like um, we're archiving white supremacist behaviours so that they can, we can just keep handing on that same baton to the next generation and the next generation. Um, how do you envisage like objects that have been archived within the archives to be shared in the future. You know, we've just seen the Benin bronze being handed back to Nigeria. We've just seen how Egyptian mummies are returned back to, to Egypt recently this year as well. So with COVID and, and the pandemic right here, right now, and the archives being revealed, how, how do you see that um, being shared in the future? Um, in arts, heritage and cultural sector and, and spread across uh, culture, spread across culture, spread across our own uh, heritage here in, in the UK. George. Well, two things. One is that um, there would be no such thing as art history in Britain, which is not built from things stolen from somewhere else. You know, if, it's a very interesting way to think about that, that unless, unless without, if you go to the British Museum, everything in there is from somewhere else. So in fact, there is no indigenous art history in that sense, okay? The interesting bits about this country, if there is any, are the things that came from elsewhere, okay? So we have to figure out to down what the discussion about decolonizing the museum or the end of the museum, if you like, is to place those questions into context that they were stolen. So you cannot discover, you're studying the things that were stolen, okay? That's one bit, that's how they're centered in the British context. I, 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 I understand and sometimes an advocate of the kinds of things about returning stuff to wherever they were, okay? I just want that discussion to be premised on the story of that theft. So it's not just a tide returning, but a tide a return with the theft. Equally, I want things in the British Museum to be premised on the fact where they were stolen, because then that opens a completely different curriculum discussion about collection, about the museum and exhibition and so on. <clears throat> this, I mean, it's, it sounds very new, but some of us have been talking about um, uh, de-racialized, de decolonizing, although with a different name, the curriculum. I think I'm the first time Dan and I first met 
was very much in the context of uh, local black politics in the bar of Camden 40 years ago. And I remember vividly then us talking about doing something about what was on offer in schools. I remember vividly the work of people like Beryl Guru in Black Parents Teachers Association or in the Saturday schools coming into view because that was a question of the embryonic beginnings of talking about the curriculum. So in a way it matters a great deal to pay attention to those histories about how they've been part and parcel of an ongoing, this is not new, this is not novel in that sense. It, 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 I, I like the fact nowadays you can go to the library or the university and find funnel. When I was a graduate student, it was something that you read in the dark. If you were lucky to get one, you know, so there are, there are these are questions your generation has to take up to make it incentive. I love to teach philosophy, you know, I love to do a curriculum on hermeneutics, which has nobody in it other than. Uh, spillers or or uh, um, or all the black feminist philosophers, you know, on say now they're available. It makes the question of studying philosophy differently from what is taught. So there's a kind of struggle. What constitutes the canon, which is very much present. You live in a time in which the short end of what is not everything is on the on the on the on the, on the internet. You know, you have to do the work. I. Not many people know. I mean, people discovered that an eminent people like uh, Stuart Hall was black. You know, there's still people who think, oh, what, was he black? He is by excellence one of the leading intellectuals of the 20th, 20th century who occupies center stage, a double center stage in understanding the social and so on. But linking it as one of our intellectual ancestors changes the context in which to discuss sociology or history of ideas and so on. And that's the, that's so we're not saying, you know, like nobody's threatening anybody. I think a good thing about, and I think it can be done. Britain has a difficulty, there's a serious difficulty with cohabiting, and I use that word deliberately, cohabiting with somebody else. It is a difficulty with living with its past. All it needs to do that is to live with that past. And where else can you go to live with the past other than the stories that black folk bring into the conversation? That's what decolonizing curriculum is all about. And Diane, do you think that in terms of living in the past as um, through the work that you're doing as a politician, is that something that we can begin in this new normal to change since the power is through politics. The power has been through um, the government saying, well, no, teachers cannot use certain language or talk about um, um, white supremacist behaviors language in their curriculum. So as a politician, how much power can, can change things in the new normal in the next two, three years? Well, I mean, I can see in the chat somebody saying, that as a mother, she's concerned that her children learn about British history in its entirety. And I think that's really important. And in the end, um, you know, politicians can affect things. Like I say, it was politicians that wrote to the board or the, of the Jeffrey Museum and reminded them that they get government funding. And if they take down that statue of the slave trade Jeffrey, you know, who knows what will happen to their government funding. But in the end, if people understand and people come together, they can make change too. There was an event last week 
um, the government sent in um, immigration officials to do a dawn raid on immigrants in Glasgow. Mm. They, it, it was a it was a working class area of Glasgow. They had this dawn raid where people woke up, and all of the neighbours really were white. Um, they woke up, they saw what was happening, and they came out and they surrounded the immigration van. And I think one guy lay under the wheels of the immigration van, and they stopped that dawn raid happening. Now that's a very dramatic example, but I think if a people understand and people are willing to come together to support and defend each other, then things can change. Because in a way, politicians respond to what people are saying or what they think people are saying and what the community has to get politicians, and that's both Tory and Labour politicians to understand, is what they think people are saying is not necessarily what people actually believe if all those hundreds of people were willing to come and stop that that south asian uh two south asian men i think being deported because they had an understanding and i think we all need to have greater understanding and we all need to support each other with um i wonder if there's a link between the ethnicity pay gap and Windrush. So let's think for a moment. Do you think that if equal pay for the global majority in this country, do you think that that would have eliminated the casualties of the Windrush scandal due to those affected being treated fairly in, in employment, thus they would be able to go up the career ladder or having access to resources and funds, thus disputing their right to be in the UK through timely legal representation? Diane? Equal pay wouldn't have stopped Windrush. Windrush was rooted in a narrative about immigration, which goes back, I think, to the 1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act, which says that immigrants are other, that you need an immigration system which penalises and marginalises and dehumanises them. Equal pay is neither here or there. And also, the nature of colonialism it's not that you give people equal pay. I mean, that's not, that's not, that's not, economic equality is not the basis of it. In the end, Windrush wasn't about a lack of equal pay. Windrush wasn't about some civil servants making mistakes. Windrush wasn't about some civil servants having a fit of absence of mind. Windrush was based in a systematically racist, immigration system. It was the most brutal example of a systematically racist immigration system, but that's what it was. George? Well, I was just thinking about, if I pose the question, uh, like, who cleans the world? You know, who, who does the cleaning? <laughs> and the, the kind of, if you pose the question that way, then you see both the class and the gendered nature of what we're trying to describe, okay? And, and so they arrive and so arrive to Windrush, coming through that kind of, kind of storyline. Who cleans the world? Okay, women clean the world, okay? They, they, you know, if, you all, if women won one day, just say they were not gonna clean the city of London overnight, the place would be like a dustbin. It's not just, it's including the waste. 
And that's where we begin to think about that, that motif, who claims the world, enables us to unlock both the racialized, gendered nature of the working class, right? That's the first. The second thing to do is the is the is this capitalism likes that 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 to kind of like to like leaves off that kind of separation of kind of like engaging people differently. So whether so it, by the time we kind of puffing in the corner about whether or not it's equal quite important it might be, we really need to grapple with the what I call the gendered nature of who cleans the world. And I used to, back in the day when I was younger, I used to sort of travel on the number two bus late night from Brixton to Camden. What you would see, all African women, you know, God knows where they lived, not sitting, that joined in with a number of other people going to clean up the city at night, leaving that vicarious stuff. The same people, guess what, in the pandemic, the same people, are vulnerable, they're not plowed, they're not fellowed, because someone has to clean the city. And it is that kind of reading the continent you are in that allows us to identify the lines and places of struggle. So windrush is not so much enough, so people are only just beginning to understand what is happening to the entirety of those cities and denizens of the city who are from the Commonwealth. This windrush is, is, is one example of, um, of a hostile environment, okay? And making sure you die when you're finished. It's not an, an obvious in place. So, and it teaches our connectedness of what we used to call the experience, the black experience. And that's the lesson we need to learn from it. When we talk about um, not just academia, but I suppose, I wonder whether academia is crumbling because of the way that universities are trying to pick uh, their, their people, pick, pick people to, to attend universities and charge high fees. Some of the people who are working in academia and some people who I've talked to, a lot of women who I know, and there's a campaign as well called Cite Black Women. There's another one about citing black authors. Do you believe that to encourage and acknowledge melanated people is there to is going to help to support or to keep the or to stop their what I suppose I'm looking at how do we keep the people in this country from understanding the contributions of black women when it comes to the written word when it comes to um, citing black authors in academia because we are picking academia and using it and as references in the work in the research how do we do that how do we do that more diane well just just quickly there was something really interesting in the chat which said that one of the reasons why the whole windrush thing blew up is because it happened in 2018 and there was a commonwealth heads of government in london at that time and british politicians i mean Windrush didn't really tell us stuff that some of us didn't know about how racist the immigration system was, but it was just too embarrassing for the government to have the whole Windrush stamp kind of blowing up when you had the Commonwealth heads of government, and it, it, it would have shed a light on the hypocrisy of, of the nature of the Commonwealth. Um, in terms of how do you get people to 
read more black women writers and to have more black women writers in the curriculum is that that what you ask and to and just not erase the narratives of melanated people who exist in those documents in the papers in the archives in you know in the in the theater scripts in in the museums in the universities so what is being taught is from a particular lens a particular focus and instead of citing um, black authors or instead of citing black women in academia, we're finding that those stories and narratives are erased because, because we don't exist. It's literally, I don't know where those, those black people are who contributed to this particular project, or I don't know where I can find these women who I asked, these black women who I asked information about that's gonna help me with my academic research paper. We, are be, we have been erased for decades. How do we turn that on its head so that deans of university, vice chancellors, chancellors of universities acknowledge the contribution of people, especially black women, to the narratives that need to be shared in this country about the Commonwealth, about I mean, people. To be, from the to be fair, people are doing the work. I'm not, I mean, you're right that um, the contribution of black people in general has, has been erased and, and black writers in general has been erased. But people are doing the work, whether it's historians, um, whether it's writers, whether it's playwrights, whether it's teachers, people are doing the work and things are inching forward. But we obviously have to continue to keep up the pressure for not just for people to do the research and do the work, but for that to be highlighted and for that to be out there for people to say. But one of the interesting things for me, you know, someone who read history at university and learned absolutely nothing about black women writers or black history at all, is that you do read a little bit more about it now in 2021 than you did 40 years ago. So people are doing the work and we as, well, you're not a lay person, you're an academic, but the rest of us as lay people and as parents and, and as students, we have to keep up the pressure for uh, curricula and uh, courses in uni and festivals, um, which actually, uh, highlight and platform and display the black contribution particularly the black female contribution I was very struck a few years ago that we had a, a Stoke Newton literary festival right it was great I like I love books and I love literary festivals but there wasn't a single black writer in the literary festival but you know I got to know the woman who ran it and she's a perfectly pleasant woman and I drew it to her attention she was like oh my goodness and the next year she did have a couple more black women writers black writers I mean there hasn't been a literary festival for the last two years because of the coronavirus so I'm saying we have to do the work we have to make the discoveries and where necessary where appropriate you have to keep the pressure up on people that run unis, that people that run literary festivals to say, come on, this society is much more multidimensional and much more diverse than you seem to be acknowledging. George, you have a couple of minutes to, to give me your response to keeping the pressure up. How do you keep the pressure up as we cite? Like, you're muted, you're muted. <laughs> 
Can there you hear go. me? There we go. There okay. we go. Thank you. What, what is, is this? I, when I began, I said without blood soul going on the on the on the upfront forty years ago, they created conditions in which I became an academic. The responsibility of people like me is to footnote you, because if I don't footnote you, nobody will. Okay, that's what I was getting at. Okay, that's the work. Secondly, we have to make use of these multiple spaces that we occupy and make our contributions to the spaces that we occupy visible than others. Okay, so, so, so and I think, and this is taking place at the time in which universities are under attack. You know, there used to be moments in which I would have suggested a place to go and study. Those sites are disappearing. You know, there is a time in which I could count on one hand people teaching in higher education. Now there are so many, but they're teaching in those peripheral, vulnerable, peripheral adjunct courses. And they too are losing their vulnerable sense. So on one hand is the question of visibility. At the same time, the challenge that those spaces are disappearing. You know, public popular education as it was 30, 40 years ago, doesn't exist anymore. You know, the trades council in which we might have gone to, to do some work for a local inquiry doesn't exist anymore. The work that we used to have been able to support in Grenfell from a community base in terms of intellectual practice doesn't exist anymore. That has happened because of the end of an accident. It's an onslaught on the constituencies the sites were built. So the struggle has to be reimagined to make sure black authors, to make sure black women authors, both as academics and writers and contributors in the academy as a whole are made visible. You know, all the leading professors, if any, in this country, okay, about 30 odd of them, yes, I know them, you know, can you imagine knowing everybody what it must mean? Can you imagine how lonely that makes one? Can you, that just tells you, it doesn't mean black folk are not involved in academic work. It's because it's increasing your, on one hand, you're excluded from it. And at this time, it's become the most uncomfortable space to work at. So that's where we are. Thanks so much for tuning in to listen to this Arcola Conversation. All episodes in our Arcola Conversation series are now available online.